If we're a humble nation but strong, they'll welcome us. But after 9-11, George W. Bush parted ways with the traditions of his father, and that decision has had consequences that are still playing themselves out. Above all, it has led to a disturbing breakdown of the checks and balances within the executive branch of the United States government. Among the consequences, a new domestic spying program and a narco-state in Afghanistan. The National Security Council at the White House, created during the Cold War to manage the enormous military, intelligence, and foreign policy apparatus of the U.S. government, has been weak and dysfunctional in the Bush administration, according to many officials who have served in that administration. As National Security Advisor during Bush's first term, Condoleezza Rice had an excellent personal relationship with the president, but lacked sufficient power and authority to get crucial things done. Foreign policy was often forged by small groups in unlikely places, including the office of the vice president and the office of the secretary of defense. Rice was forced to play catch-up and to accept professional indignities, particularly at the hands of Donald Rumsfeld. Some of her chagrined aides believe others in her place would have resigned. Her loyalty was rewarded, however, when Bush named her Secretary of State at the start of his second term. In many cases, policies weren't debated at all. There never was a meeting of all the President's senior advisors to formally debate and decide whether to invade Iraq, according to a senior administration source. And the most fateful decision of the post-invasion period, the move by American proconsul L. Paul Bremer to disband the Iraqi army, may have been made without President Bush's advanced knowledge. The action, almost certainly coordinated with Rumsfeld, contradicted the recommendations of an interagency planning group chaired by the National Security Council. The absence of effective management has been the defining characteristic of the Bush administration's foreign policy and has allowed radical decisions to rapidly take effect with minimal review. In very different ways, the Army and the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, have traditionally served as gravitational forces supporting the status quo. Both institutions abhor sudden change and tend to force policy toward the middle. But under Bush, the Army and the CIA have failed to put up much of a bureaucratic fight, despite deep anger and frustration over the administration's conduct of national security policy. The docility of the American officer corps is particularly striking. One senior administration source notes that during his visits to Iraq, he invariably heard American commanders complain about such problems as the lack of sufficient troops. But during meetings and video conferences with Bush and Rumsfeld in which this source participated, those same senior military commanders would not voice their complaints. Their silence allowed the White House to state publicly that U.S. commanders in the field were satisfied with the resources at their disposal and that they never had requested additional troops for Iraq. No other institution failed in its mission as completely during the Bush years as did the CIA. By the end of Bush's first term, the CIA looked like the government's equivalent of Enron, an organization whose bankruptcy triggered cries for reform. 
It takes only a little more than one decade's worth of history to understand how the CIA found itself, in the period before the 2003 invasion of Iraq, producing what amounted to White House talking points rather than independent and disciplined intelligence reports. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the CIA's original mission ended. The Clinton administration and Congress soon began slashing the intelligence budget in search of a peace dividend, and Bill Clinton showed almost no interest in intelligence matters. His first CIA director, James Woolsey, felt so isolated from the president and the rest of the administration that he lasted barely two years. In the midst of this public reassessment of the agency's role in the new era, CIA officer Aldrich Ames was arrested as a Russian spy in 1994, triggering an acrimonious period of mole hunting and finger-pointing. Senior CIA officers began heading for the exits en masse. Over a three- or four-year period in the early to mid-1990s, virtually an entire generation of CIA officers, the people who had won the Cold War, quit or retired. The brief but bitter tenure of CIA Director John M. Deutsch only hastened the agency's fall. When he arrived at the CIA in 1995, Deutsch made no secret of the fact that he didn't want the job, and he quickly alienated a crucial constituency, the Directorate of Operations, the agency's clandestine service. His decision to fire senior officers over a scandal in Guatemala may have been sound management practice, but it led to an open rebellion within the Directorate of Operations. The agency became paralyzed by an aversion to high-risk espionage operations for fear they would lead to political flaps. Less willing to take big risks, the CIA was less able to recruit spies in dangerous places, such as Iraq. At the same time, the CIA tried to answer public questions about its post-Cold War mission by taking on a series of new jobs, including nuclear proliferation, terrorism, and international narcotics trafficking. Woolsey liked to say that the CIA had fought a dragon for 40 years, but now faced lots of poisonous snakes. And it would soon become obvious that the CIA was not particularly good at multitasking. In the absence of one overriding priority like the Soviet Union, it became much more tempting for CIA management to shift resources from one target to another depending on the interests and even the whims of the administration in power. Thanks to Vice President Al Gore, for example, the CIA briefly made the global environment one of its priorities. The growth of cable news networks and later the Internet intensified the pressures on policymakers to respond to the crisis of the moment, and policymakers in turn pressured the CIA. Long-term research and in-depth analysis suffered as CIA managers and analysts became fixated on the race to get late-breaking tidbits of intelligence into the president's daily brief. Carl Ford, a former CIA analyst, observes, if I had to point to one specific problem that explains why we are doing such a bad job on intelligence, it is this almost single-minded focus on current reporting. In the 1970s, Ford adds, 70 to 80 percent of CIA analysts spent their time doing basic research on key topics. Today, about 90 percent of analysts do nothing but current reporting. Analysts today are looking at intelligence coming in and then writing what they think about it 
but they have no depth of knowledge to determine whether the current intelligence is correct. George Tenet walked into this dangerous mix in 1997. Tenet had been serving as Deutsch's deputy, had earlier worked on intelligence policy at the White House, and before that had served as staff director of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He was determined not to repeat the mistakes of his predecessors. Woolsey had failed because he had no relationship with the president. Deutsch had failed because he alienated the clandestine service. Tenet would devote himself to courting the Oval Office and the Directorate of Operations. In many ways, Tenet was a fine peacetime director of Central Intelligence. But as one former CIA officer noted, Tenet was a great cheerleader, not a great leader. And while he rebuilt budgets and morale, the structural weaknesses of the U.S. intelligence community were not addressed. The failure to deal with hard management problems during peacetime would come back to haunt Tenet when a new administration, one with a harder edge and a much greater interest in intelligence, came into office. In hindsight, even many of Tenet's admirers and associates believe he should have quit the CIA when Bill Clinton left office. He could have left with his reputation untainted by 9-11 and the Hunt for Iraqi Weapons of Mass Destruction, or WMD, and would have been remembered as the man who turned the CIA around. Tenet might also be remembered for the displays of refreshing bluntness that he exhibited early in his time at the CIA, even at a personal cost. In May 1998, when the CIA was caught by surprise by India's testing of a nuclear bomb, Tenet had to deal with the consequences of the first major intelligence failure to occur on his watch. As soon as the news broke, Tenet talked by phone with Senator Richard C. Shelby, the wily Alabama Republican...